Oh, hey, Zoe. How are you doing today? Hey, Brian. I'm pretty good. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. What do you know about amphipods? Basically nothing. You don't know anything about these crustaceans? Come on, you got to know a little bit. I know they're crustaceans. <laughs> well, that's better than a lot of people know, I think. But you know what? That's the subject of today's podcast. I have Dr. Chris White and her undergraduate student, Sally Sir, who was the first author on a paper for this, and they describe a new species from Japan. Wow. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, well, let's go. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Patrick. And I'm Zoe Albion, your other co-host. On this podcast, we talk to scientists about their recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to these scientists about how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn how they decided that they were new species and the behind the scenes stories of finding them. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the new species podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Brian Patrick. And today I'm joined by Sally Sir and her co-author, Dr. Chris White. Sally's an undergrad at Georgia College and State University. And Chris is an assistant professor of biology in the Department of Biological and Environmental Sciences at GCSU. They're talking to me today about their paper in the February 1st issue of Zootaxa, in which they describe a new species of merid amphipod from Japan. Welcome, Sally and Christine. Hi. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have both of you on. I haven't done an interview yet where I'm doing two people at the same time, so this will be a, a fun experiment. And we're going to jump right in and just tell us a little bit about what is it. First, what's an amphipod, and then what's a merit amphipod? Like, what, what's more specific about that? So most people probably have never heard of an amphipod. Give us the generalized description of it. Well, an amphipod is a small shrimp-like crustacean. Um, a lot of people call them beach hoppers or scuds, um, but they're typically 2 to 15 millimeters in size, and they live absolutely everywhere. Um, most of them live in the ocean, but you can find them on land or in freshwater, too. Merid amphipods, so Meridae is the family, and so amphipods in this family share certain characters that sort of just group them together. So they have... For example, a, a notch on their head margin or nathopods that look different in males and females. Uh, so there's just certain, a group of characteristics that groups them together. And, and what are nathopods? You just mentioned them. Oh, sorry. Nathopods are, are one of the, it's a word for a specialized leg that they have. So one of their legs. Sure. Okay, so so now we kind of know the general size, and and you said from two to fifteen millimeters on average, right? And so you're looking at like if we're going to put this in American terms, because there's a lot of people who listen to that, we're looking at like a tenth of an inch up to maybe three quarters of an inch or so on average, right? Right. And so these are things you can physically see with your eyes. So they have like a lot of variation in their coloration. When I think of amphipods, I always think of white things, like they're always little white things, but it, they have variation in coloration, right? They do. Um, the new species is actually white, but they have a, a wide range of colors. I mean, I've seen them in green and blue, purple, pink, red, orange. Uh, they come in all different colors with some really striking color patterns, too. Yeah, and, and I remember seeing some pictures of some from, like, deep sea areas that were actually, like, bright red or blue or something. And I'm like, what? why do they have color down there? Well, I don't know about that, but uh, usually it's to blend in with their habitat, whatever... Whatever I've actually seen the same species of amphipod that lives in three different sponges 
and they were each the color of the sponge they were living in. So, oh, nice. Oh, nice. So it's, a, it's very cryptic then, right? So they're looking for some sort of camouflage to go with it. That's what it seems like. What do amphipods do ecologically? Like, what are they doing out in the world? Are they, what's, what's their role in our planet? Among, I, I'm sure there's a long list of them, but let's, let's kind of get the highlights of it. Um, so probably the most important thing is their food. Um, they're a really important food source for fish and other invertebrates. Um, they are they recycle organic material. Uh, they absorb toxins and pollutants readily from the environment. So, but but mainly their food. Yeah, and we find these in in freshwater habitats, of course, right? And so they can become very important for fish fry, like little tiny baby fish to eat, that sort of thing. So they're they're actually used as ecological indicators as well, isn't that correct? They are. Sally is actually presenting um, some research that involves talking about them being environmental indicators. Ooh, Sally, <laughs> can you cue us in early on that one? Um, yeah. In about a month in Valdosta, I'm presenting on a preliminary analysis of the amphipods of Panama. Um, we recently went on a trip and uh, Dr. White collected a bunch of more samples. And so I'm going to be going over the biodiver- biodiversity that uh, is found there and looking at what's going on in their environment. <laughs> All right. So you heard it here first, and that's going to be <laughs> Sally Sir presenting on uh, research from down in Panama. Was that at the, uh, the Smithsonian station down there? Yes, sir, it was. Ah, cool, cool. And as I recall, I was looking over uh, Chris's information, kind of bouncing around what I could find on the web. And it looks like she had a nice grant to do some some sampling down in that area. Is that right, Chris? Yeah, it was a collaborative um, NSF grant, uh, systematics, um, basically teaching students how to do taxonomy and systematics, and then wrapped in with doing some revisionary systematics with it. So um, Sally's now part of that project. And that, that was broader than just amphipods. You're just one of the people working on amphipods, and there are others in that group as well, right? Yes, there's... Um, seven of us. So we have people working on mollusks, um, uh, nudibranchs, uh, several different types of, let's see, flatworms, nematodes. So these are mostly mostly marine, but not entirely, right? Our focus is the marine environment. So, okay. so for this project, it is marine. Okay. Yeah. I was just asking because some of those things, could, like the amphipods can be found in the water. Nudibranchs, of course, are strictly... <laughs> Quite strictly aquatic. For this new species, now this one is from Japan that we're talking about, right? So this is a new species from Okinawa, Japan. Can you tell us a little bit about where you found it and how you found it? So I was actually doing um, a postdoctoral fellowship in Japan. Um, and while I was working there, uh, a group of us were, it was, this was sort of a side project. And so we there's a road that called Kaichudoro, which actually connects... Um, a peninsula to the main island. And as we were driving across it, we couldn't help but notice that one side looked completely different from the other. Um, and this road essentially split a tidal, bit, uh, a tidal flat into two separate habitats. So we wanted to see what sort of environmental impact that had. So we were um, sampling or well, really documenting the diversity of like fish, algae, other invertebrates, um, and taking water quality parameters to compare the two sides. And it turned out that they were completely different. 
uh, after being effectively separated. Um, and so the amphipods were part of, this amphipod was part of that collection uh, where we took rubble and sediment samples and then we would basically stir them up, get all the critters out um, and sort them to see who was there. And at the time... And when, and when you say rubble rubble and, and sample, are you talking in... So these are tidal flats. This is marine environment, right? So it's salt water. This is salt water. And are you talking down in the water or right on the water's edge? Or where, um, where specifically so are we? It was about... It was in the water, but probably one to three meters deep. So so three to nine feet three deep. Three to ten feet, yeah. somewhere in that range. Um, and so we would just take... Basically take... Scoop up a sample of the rocks and and sediment and then just see who was there and we at the time i had 35 morpho species which is what you say when you don't know what it is you just know it's different from something else um and there just there was no time to go further than that so the samples have been sitting on my shelf since 2012 and then I'll... i know that feeling well <laughs> so along came sally and we just started pulling them out trying to identify stuff and we found nice. this guy. Nice. And then, and so Sally, then now now we zoom over to you. You're in your third year of college now. You are turning into quite the amphipod expert, apparently. Uh, so how did you, tell me, now you, she hands you these specimens. How did you figure out that these were new species? Like, describe to us the pain of <laughs> sitting down with amphipods and trying to figure out what they are and, and determining that they're new. Um, well, for a long time, I wasn't even doing that. I think I spent like months learning how to dissect them first and then just learning a yeah, bunch of different. Because these things are like like five millimeters long, right? So like a quarter of an inch long and you got to do dissections on them, right? Yes, sir. I had to give up coffee so I wouldn't be shaky. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're lo- what are you looking for when you're doing the dissections? Um, well, it really depends on each genus because the keys for each genus are so different um hopefully you're not looking for mouth parts because that is a true pain so i just learned how to dissect these and then she trusted me enough to start looking at some actual samples that she needed id'd and just looking at a bunch of different uh identification keys the the amphipod just didn't match up with any of the species and so we could kind of figure out that it was new <laughs> the probably the, the hardest part then is did, were you able to figure out the genus relatively quickly you probably got the family for, relatively quickly but then the genus and that sort of thing because it seems to me as i was looking around on trying to find information about these that there are very subtle differences even between the genera uh that's true I feel like on this one, it's been a long time because I think we started looking at it my freshman year, but I think on this one, we maybe bounced between genuses a few times. Is that right, Dr. White? I think we had the the genus pretty quickly just because this specific genus has some very distinct characters. Um, So once we got close to the family level, it wasn't too hard to get to genus, but the species was, it it was tough. (laughs) Yeah, especially when you're looking at things this small, right? And and like Sally said, if you have to do things like look at genitalia or mouth parts or, you know, some weird suture, which is where two plates of things meet on the outside of these because these things have an exoskeleton, right? Like does the suture bend this way or bend that way type of thing? It gets to be very – especially on a white specimen, that probably is pretty challenging. 
Yeah, and also they had been sitting there since like 2004, so they weren't, no, not 2004, 2012. So they had not been in the best shape. So a lot of the times you would like look at a fold and you're like, is it just kind of rotting away? What? But according to this, in your collection methods, they were put into pretty high percentage alcohol right away, weren't they? Yeah. So probably the biggest <laughs> thing was they probably dehydrated a little bit, and then they probably got a little crunchy almost, right? Yeah, that, that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, particularly since they have that exoskeleton. But then, of course, when you dehydrate them, they get a little crunchy. They just the, It fixes the muscles so they don't, they don't move as easily. Mm-hmm. You don't say anything about it in here, but why would you keep these in 99% alcohol? Was there a hope of doing some genetics work with these at some point? Yeah, um, at that time, I was the idea was, yeah, because if they're in formalin, you can't usually extract the DNA because the proteins are all... Yeah, it inhibits the process, yeah. yeah. Um, so the idea was, let's put them in ethanol and, you know, just in case we get to them and can do the DNA, but obviously that didn't work out, so... <laughs> 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 yeah, I, again, I know how that goes too. <laughs> so we've gone through the process of, of like collecting and, and actually I, I don't think people understand the pain that you have to go through. You're like, oh, I just went out and I just collected some from some sediment. I don't think it's quite that easy, is it? Like you just like you just walk out there and pick up a handful of sediment when it's 10 feet below the surface of the water or three meters down. No. Give, give us a little idea of like the pain of being in the field looking for these things. Because you make it sound like it's just like, oh, it's super easy. Maybe it is. Is it? Um, well, you know, it depends on the season. <laughs> if, <laughs> if it's winter, it's not. It's painful. But um, usually what we're doing is snorkeling or scuba diving. And so you're kind of looking around for for substrates that look like they have lots of places for critters to go. Um, so I am a little selective in collecting just to kind of maximize, you know, what, what you get. Um, but yeah, it is, it takes a while to get the samples and then you have to, um, we call it elutriation, but really all that means is stirring it up um, so that the little critters get stuck in the surface tension of the water and then you can pour them off into a strainer. Um, so it is, I mean, it's a day to get a few samples. And then it's another day to sort those samples. And then it's, you know, about two years to identify those samples. Yeah. <laughs> and you just mentioned winter sampling. So I, I, I envision that there's actually a seasonality to these things. There's definitely a seasonality. Usually... And it kind of varies depending on the species or the location. Um, but usually you have, you know, there's reproductive season. So you'll have a whole bunch of them and then they'll kind of disappear and other things will kind of take over. This particular project, we sampled four times a year. So we covered every season. Um, and I think, if I remember right, we did collect this species in every season, but the numbers of them uh, decreased in the winters. And so how common were they when you found them? Like even at their peak, were they like one of the dominant species? Or are they just like one of the just kind of every now and then type species? Or I would say it was probably not dominant, but um, common enough. It was it was in, I'd say probably 70% of the samples that we got. Um, but there were definitely other species that were more dominant. So, and that's the, that's the thing I like to encourage people to understand when they listen to this podcast is sometimes these are not super rare things found in the weirdest places on the planet. 
This is, if you live in a coastal area, it's not unusual to see a mudflat. And it's also not unusual to just go out and pick up a scoop of mud and then find something new in it. When 90% of the animals that are, or, or the organisms on our planet are theoretically undescribed, we've only described 10% of them as our estimate. At best, 10% of them is our estimate. Your chances of finding a new thing are relatively high, right? And and how well studied are the amphipods? Are these things where are, are is this one of those things kind of like I work on a small group of spiders where I can probably work for 30 years. And if I were even at a place where I could do like the taxonomy, like in a, in a pretty good clip, I probably would never run out of things to do. Is that kind of where the amphipods are? I think so. I mean, there's about 10,000 described species, um, but I probably have 100 at least on my shelf right now uh, that are undescribed. Um, I'd say there's probably about 100 active amphipodologists in the world today. Um, but yeah, the, there's just so many out there that I feel like, like you said, we could, we might never know how many there are. Well, and Sally, did you hear that? There's 100 just sitting on her shelf. So when you get bored... <laughs> Just go into Dr. White's office and just pick up a random vial and be like, I got it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the The name that you pick for the species is is really pretty interesting. So it's Mukuinu. Sorry, that was just the specific epithet. Let me make sure I say the entire name. Uh, actually, you say the whole name. I'll let you guys describe. Tell us the name of this thing and, and, the, and, and how you pick that name. It's called Elasmopus Mukuinu. I feel like Dr. White really did a lot with naming it, but... Uh, the nathopod two of this amphipod is really shaggy. It has these like hair like hair like structures. So that's so, the leg like thing we were talking about earlier, right? Yes, sir. And um, in Japanese, muku inu means shaggy dog. I think um, Dr. White reached out to one of her friends and asked for some suggestions, and that was one of them. And we thought it was kind of fun. <laughs> Yeah, see, you get to name, you don't always have to name species like these, like, extremely technical names. Sometimes you can come up with a fun name that's still descriptive, right? Yes, sir. And is this the first species you've named? Because I, you, you, you've done some other projects with Dr. White over this course of the time with Chris for a little while, right? Yes, sir. Uh, but this is the first species I've named. Do you have any others in the, in the pipeline? We're going, we're identifying a lot of amphipods from Panama. I'm sure one of the, some new species is going to end up under our microscope soon enough, but not yet, we don't think. And I noticed in this particular paper, most, for, for people who don't know the taxonomy process, most of the time it's not just saying like, this is a new species, like you have to kind of prove it. And so people do a lot of illustrations. And in this particular paper, you have a very high density of illustrations, how did you tell me a little bit about that process? Because that, that those don't look easy to draw when you're talking about very tiny creatures like this. <laughs> um, luckily, Dr. White is a great uh, professor, so she made the process pretty. Somebody just got an A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, she just she, she just sang your praises on a podcast that twelve people <laughs> listen to. You just got an A. <laughs> um, but. Uh, first, we have to dissect the actual amphipod, which, in my opinion, is probably the hardest part of drawing an amphipod. And then you take each slide, we put it under a microscope that has a drawing tube, so you can see the paper that you're going to be drawing on, as well as the amphipod, like yeah, so it, it comes up to like a little mirror, and then it, it reflects off onto a piece of paper off to the side, so you don't have to look through the through the 
eyepieces, right? Is that what you're describing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then um, I drew them on a. I scanned the the drawings in and then traced them on Adobe Illustrator, and that's how we get those drawings. It's kind of tedious, but I f- I thought it was the most relaxing part of the work, honestly. Wow, wow. that's my least favorite part of doing all of this. You see- <laughs> It is tedious. That's probably the longest. It probably takes less time to describe the thing than it does to do the drawings. Yeah, (laughs) I would agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) We talked a little bit about this at the beginning, like what the importance of amphipods are. Do we have any idea what these specific ones are doing out in the world, this new species? Or can we, is there any way to guess just based on the structures that it has? Not really. I mean, we kind of group amphipods into like this, you know, just sort of just a group that we know that a lot of them can absorb toxins. And so kind of the big deal is just kind of knowing the diversity of an area so that you can track changes. And so some species are more sensitive than others. Um, and we only know about the ones that have actually been studied in that capacity. So for these guys, we really don't know a whole lot. And, and as far as our structures go, you know, you can make some guesses about like functional morphology like this part is here because it does this but um we just know so little about their ecology that it's hard to say for sure and these are mostly filter feeders right so they're just going along trying to get nutrients out of the the particulates in the water or maybe even little tiny bacteria things like that is that about right yeah a lot of them do that but um, a lot of different ones do. I mean, we have slime lappers. Some of them eat poop. You know, they do all kinds of things. Um, so it really, the more sea totes they are, so the more hairy they are, the better the chances are that, yeah, they're just filtering stuff out of the water. Correct me if I'm wrong. I remember, and we're just talking amphipods in general now, just kind of go to the bigger picture. There are even some predatory ones. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. There's And a little bit larger too. Like they're hitting like an inch long and Tell us a little bit about some of these so we can just kind of get, get an idea of like the broad idea of, of amphipods. Um, yeah, they, I mean, the thing is there's so many of them that I think they pretty much fill every role. But yeah, they'll they'll attack. There are some cannibalistic species. And, you know, I guess the in the end of the day, the goal is they're hungry, they're going to eat. So if you get in their way and there's nothing else, you might be dinner. <laughs> Well, that's fair. I mean, what else can you say about that, right? Why do we need to keep looking for for amphipods? I I have a million reasons myself, but I like to to give people kind of a reason for for why they should think like, you know, these little things, they they probably aren't that important. That's wrong. We already know that they can be the base of food chains for, for very important things that people, that humans like too, right? Not just other reasons, but for things that humans like, for like sport fish and that sort of thing. Why, why do we need to keep looking for amphipods? Well, I think, I mean, there's, like you said, a million reasons. Uh, but, you know, knowing what's there and being able to track changes to the environment at this place in the food chain. So if you can start at the bottom, you have a chance at mitigating or stopping pollution or whatever's going on. But if you wait until the fish we're trying to eat are affected, I mean, at that point, I feel like it's it's a lot harder to kind of go back at that point. But, yeah, it's almost too late. Yeah, yeah. and that's that's a, a great point you're making there is that these things, that we had mentioned it earlier, they're bioindicators. 
subtle changes in their in the in the community of these, so the number of species you're finding and how commonly you're finding those, can indicate a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly, like if you if you're suspecting there might be toxins coming into the water, or that road you put in that divided the mud flat may actually have an effect on you know what's on the other side of the the road. Right. Just as you describe where you found these. Yeah. So these are important reasons to do these things. I just would like to underscore this for our listeners. Sally, you are a rising star. So good luck to you. Thank are you, you. going to go on to grad school, do you think, and maybe study more of this? Or, or what are your future plans? <laughs> um, heavily considering it. I don't know if you just saw Dr. White nodding. But, um... Well, yeah, that's what exactly what our professors do. As soon as we yeah. like, are you going to go on? Say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not pressuring her, but I'm strongly suggesting. Well, and yeah. you said there's what, about 100 active amphipod taxonomists in the world right now? Mm-hmm. This is what I always tell my students. Find the thing that nobody works on and go be an expert in it, and you will have a long and fruitful career. For exactly that reason, because at some point, somebody's going to need to know what these things are, and they're going to have to be able to identify them, and they're going to have to come to the people who can do it. Particularly if, you, if you're if you able to throw in that molecular toolbox that you can move from straight taxonomy into systematics as well. That'll be great. So, And then, Dr. White, tell us about it. Have you got any future projects that you're working on here? Well, the big project is this Panama Biodiversity Project. So that's uh, we've got a couple more years to go on that. Um, but other than that, we're just, you know, we're also kind of looking at macroinvertebrates around Milledgeville, Georgia, because no one has ever documented what's here. So that's all I really So right have. there in your backyard. Yeah. So, so nobody's really looked at the, the amphipods right there where you're at? Nope. It's, so are you looking at both terrestrial, I'm, I'm assuming terrestrial and, and the aquatic environments like lakes and ponds and things around and rivers and all that? Yep, looking everywhere. Always looking. Excellent. Well, that'll be great. We look forward to hearing more about that in the coming years. So thank you for both coming on to the podcast, and I appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Once again, Sally Sir and Dr. Christine White's papers in the February 1st issue of Zootaxa, and the title of the paper is Merid Amphipods from Okinawa, Japan, with Description of a New Species. See the episode details for a link to their paper, and to learn more about Sally and Christine, check out the episode notes for more information. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash new species podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. <laughs>